Hello everybody, this is Jeremy Alice, and welcome to Penny Tolerable, where two large adult siblings talk about movies, TV, comics, and whatever else. We've spent a lifetime together, so you can spend some time with us. Now, uh, who is this sitting next to me, this white wolf with crimson eyes? Oh, I get to be Elric? Yeah, sure. Okay. I was worried I was getting stuck being Moonglob. A fun one. I think... <laughs> I think in our relationship as siblings, you've always been Elric and I've always been Moonglob. <laughs> well, is this just based on my skin tone or what? I don't know. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah. What? Okay, we've been playing our cards really close to our chest this time. <laughs> what are we talking about this week? We are talking about uh, Elric of Melnibene, the uh, Chronicles of the Black Sword, a book series written by... Uh, Michael Moorcock, which was part of his uh, Eternal Champions saga. Mm -hmm. And what we're, what we're doing now is, uh, basically, I've always been fascinated by the character of Elric. But because of, like, different faculty problems that I have, I find it very hard to uh, read, like, prose, like, like, I can read books, but it's when it's, like, a novel or a story that I have some trouble with. And, uh, you know, I usually go with audiobooks, stuff like that. And, uh, but I've always been fascinated by uh, Elric and the Eternal Champions. But what little knowledge I have of them has come from two uh, rock bands, uh, Hawkwind... The British band and Domine, the Italian band. Yeah. And, you know, I hear their songs and I love them. You know, anyone who has heard or listened to those two uh, bands will know, like, the songs like Needle Gun or uh, Bear of the Black Sword, they're great. But I just wanted to learn more about uh, these characters. So. Today is going to be kind of a QA. and a yeah. I'll be queuing and Nathaniel will be A-ing. Yeah, I'll be a real A today. Um, so right away, uh, Jeremy Ellis, you've demonstrated uh, your, your ignorance because you keep pluralizing the eternal champions when in fact there is only one eternal champion. Okay. He is the same uh, hero reincarnated in many different forms. Kind of surprised you didn't know that. By the way, it's the uh, first day of allergy season, and I probably sound uh, even more nasal and grating than usual, <laughs> which makes it perfect for this sort of episode, because it's mostly just going to be me saying, well, actually, I'll, I think you'll find that uh, in the New World's Magazine movement of the 1960s, England was trying to move away from the, the baleful and stifling Mark Main of uh, Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings cycle. <laughs> Did you? Did all that come out of you? Yeah, I, I did this with a friend in a text, and she said, "Did you just make that up?" And I told her, "This is the only thing I'm good at." <laughs> <laughs> just like borderline glossolalia rambling. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, Elric, uh, the Eternal Champions. Uh, oh, I did it myself. Yeah. Yeah, I like uh, Michael Moorcock in general, but Elric is 
far and away his uh, most popular character. I think mm-hmm. the one I'll be most remembered for. So uh, I, I'm happy to field any questions that you might have, and I'll probably go on at great length. Uh, one reason we thought of doing this, uh, first of all, we always try to be positive on this show. Mm-hmm. Every time I do like too many episodes like Morbius, I'm like, I want, let's talk about something I like instead. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because, yeah, like, why, why waste too much time on shit that it's not even like a good hate watch, it's just boring. Mm-hmm. Like, well, fuck that, I'll talk about Gormenghast or something good yeah. instead. Uh, so that we certainly have that going. Uh, I don't think there's really a wealth of information about Morcock and the Eternal Champion, like uh, r- relative to his influence, which is mm-hmm. just fantastic and in, in, in Maine. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's only like little specialty corners where you see anyone discussing him, so I'm happy to, to nerd out about that as well. And also, for some reason, this is like the year of the multiverse. Yeah. So like we had Doctor Strange, still haven't seen it. I know you have, maybe we'll do an episode. Uh, but Multiverse of Madness is about the multiverse. That new Flash movie, which might star Ezra Miller at yeah, this point. Kinda. Yeah, if you can outrun the law long enough <laughs> to uh, finish filming, uh, that's about the multiverse. And one of the last, like, real movies, like a good movie for grown-ups that I saw was Everything Everywhere All at Once, which is mm-hmm. big time about the multiverse. And I guess Rick and Morty's probably done it too, but that seems to be, like, the thing we're into now. So it's as good a time as any to go back to the uh, series and the author that actually... First created the multiverse. Yeah. The first time the word was ever used in the English language outside of, like, theoretical physics. Mm-hmm. Michael Moorcock and the multiverse. And without giving away the game, but uh, among all the things that Moorcock has given the world, mm-hmm. like all of his influences, yeah. don't like the multiverse. I've never liked it as a concept. I don't even like it when he does it. Really? And, yeah, and we can get into that later, but um, I, I have literally never seen it done well that I can think of. Hmm. And all, everything, everywhere, all at once probably comes closest. And even then, I would call it, like, a qualified success. <laughs> so it's it's not my favorite thing. <laughs> well, if, you, uh, if you're not into the multiverse, uh, apparently you haven't seen the Jet Li movie, The One. Yeah, honestly, that's... We joke, but like that one-star movie that nobody likes. Mm-hmm. Probably the second best story I've ever seen about the multiverse. <laughs> yes. uh, the whole I, the movie where the whole draw was watch him fight him. Yeah, which uh, you'd think would be more fun, but then it's it's kind of nothing. <laughs> Throwing motorcycles at each other. Yeah, um, but. Anyway, and the weird thing about the one is in order for the plot to work, there have to be a finite number of universes. Mm -hmm. By the way, I saw when... God, we're talking about the one. I know, but when that movie came out, I I saw some people, I think Ebert did this, where he was like, by the way, like, uh, why why aren't there other versions of Jet Li coming to kill him? Why don't they just wait until, like, Jet Li's an old man and then go kill him in that timeline? And it's like... 
I hate to stick up for the movie because it sucks. They do actually mention that. They say yeah, it's like it's like there's there's like a hundred and seventeen different realities. It's not an infinite number. Otherwise, the the mm-hmm. premise, because it's essentially yeah. Highlander, yeah, wouldn't work. There have to be a finite number, which works for the logic of the story. But then that all, you're also like a hundred and seven. What? That's like Futurama of like it's just awesome the cowboy universe. Yeah. Like, so there's, there's just like, there are about as many Jet Li's as there were different types of Ninja Turtles in the toy line. <laughs> oh, this one's a clown. Uh, this one's a samurai. Now they're Kiss. Yeah. That's about it. Yeah. <laughs> That's all of them. Uh, but anyways, enough about Jet Li. Let's talk about uh, another British fantasy author. <laughs> Michael Moorcock. <laughs> a pretty graceful transition. <laughs> well, okay, you got your cues. Go ahead and Amy. Okay, uh, first off, um, to kind of prepare myself for this, I read different uh, like entries online, uh-huh. different wiki stuff. Um, and also I watched the Hawkwind Chronicle Black Sword concert film, mm-hmm. which is very interesting because you have these trippy camera work, uh, you have Michael Moorcock doing a lot of the in-between stuff, like between the songs, Yeah, and uh, you had the, uh, the London Mimes, like the official Mimes of London, the uh-huh. society, um, no, it's the Times of London. <laughs> okay, okay. Easy mistake. <laughs> you had them dressing up as uh, Elric and other characters, which... <sighs> Elric, Moonglob and the gang. <laughs> yeah. Which I watched and I thought it was pretty neat. Um, but what are the... What's the Eternal Champion in general? Uh, The Eternal Champion is the framework by which Moorcock hangs most of his characters. And uh, it began... Okay, I'm already like Sir Paws a lot here. One thing that helps to contextualize Moorcock is that A, extremely intelligent, but got his start very, very early. I think he was like writing and editing when he was uh, 15. So it's like he and Terry Pratchett are the two authors where you're like, what the shit? Like, how long have you been writing? It's like, well, you, you have to remember they started when they were like five. Yeah. So, uh, th- and that does help contextualize the Eternal Champion because it's the sort of idea that a smarter than usual 12-year-old would have. Yeah. What if all heroes were the same hero? Mm-hmm. So what if like, Hiawatha and the Lone Ranger and Roland and uh, El Cid and uh, all these great legendary heroes, uh, real or not, were all simply the same person reincarnated. Mm -hmm. And again, if I had come up with that when I was 15, I would have been like, whoa! And now I look at that and I'm like, I I don't actually know if I like that. I, Mm -hmm. I actually like when things are more... Is that heterogeneous when they're like totally distinct from each other? Yeah. I think I'm using the word right. Uh, yeah, to me that actually makes things feel a little 
smaller yeah. rather than bigger. But it's still kind of a cool concept. So one of his very, very earliest works, I think even pre-Elric, he writes the novel The Eternal Champion. Mm-hmm. The Englishman John Dacre falls asleep, and in his dreams he is drawn into another world. Uh, he is reborn as the champion. And I can do Mel Nibonet. I have never cracked the code. I think it's Ericose is the name of, like, Ericos, Ericose. It's got, it ends with an E with an umlaut over it. Hmm. So, like, fuck me. Like, yeah. So, let's say Ericos. We'll say John Dacre. Keep it easy. Um, he is reborn, and the ritual that brings him to life says, like, you've been, you've lived many past lives. You've been Hiawatha and Robin Hood and Odysseus and all these yeah. people. And actually an extremely good novel because he is brought forth by these people to, uh, be their champion against this race of alien creatures. As spoiler alert here, uh, for like a 60-something-year-old novel, over the course of the book, he realizes that uh, they are actually the tyrants, that the aliens are innocent, and that the force that he's fighting for are essentially colonizers. So it's uh, uh, it's like the Krees and the Skrulls? Something like that, yeah. And so he... uh, the, and the big twist at the end of the book is that he finally realizes he's on the wrong side, so he uses all of their advanced tech to essentially genocide the human race. Hmm. And he ends up marrying his queen from the, uh, the other, the aliens, or uh, the, the people they're colonizing. And that starts off the uh, thread here. Oh, I'm negotiating its needs. But the whole uh, point is that the... Champion is meant to be like a doomed figure. Mm-hmm. He keeps recurring. He's reborn. John Dacre remembers his past lives, but none of the other ones do. And they have to repeat an endless cycle of becoming a champion and either ending up as villains or ending up as doomed heroes. So even if they are ultimately on the side of right, they still lose everything and inevitably they end up killing their the love of their life and betraying loved ones and things like that. Now, it, it's not just... Uh, I think I remember you telling me this. It's not just the eternal champion himself that comes back, but it's different people in his life. Like, you, I remember you saying Yerkun is... Uh, What's his name? Frank Cornelius? Was that? Yes. And that's that's a whole other thing because out of all of the different subseries, they all echo, they all rhyme, to mm-hmm. use that, that George Lucas phrase. Uh, but the Jerry Cornelius novels, like the the proto-cyberpunk spy experimental harlequinade novels, mm-hmm. those are literally Elric. So he's not just an Elric-like figure. Moorcock, like as an exercise, said why don't I just rewrite Elric as a spy character? And so it's beat for beat for beat the same. So Elric's a traitorous uh, cousin that he hates, uh, Yarkun, his archenemy, is Frank Cornelius, the shitty drug-addicted brother to Jerry Cornelius. And they both uh, lost after their own sister, Catherine Cornelius. Mm-hmm. Um and so with Elric, he has, uh, like, Elric has a couple girlfriends and even a wife by the end of the series, but 
different figures recur. So there's like the eternal concubine, the eternal lover, the eternal, uh, it goes by different names, like the eternal sidekick. Mm-hmm. It's probably a more elegant way to put that, but there's the eternal companion. The eternal companion. That's, that's what I was searching for. Now, one problem with the eternal champion as an idea is that after a while, it starts to get kind of ridiculous. So, case in point, does Elric. Mm-hmm. Then he does Jerry Cornelius. And Cornelius is so totally amoral, he's not even, like, an anti-hero. He's just, like, like it's like the early Eon Flux cartoons. Like, yeah. they reset every single time. So, characters die, they pop up in different roles. It's, like, mm-hmm. meant to be the Commedia dell'arte. It's, like, a cast that plays different roles. Yeah. Uh, he comes up with a couple other fun, but, like, fairly straightforward fantasy heroes. So, like, John Dacre, uh, Hawkmoon, mm-hmm. and my favorite, actually, uh, Coram, the Prince yeah. in the Scarlet Robe. And they go through similar sort of twisted fantasy adventures, and they are all implied to be the same character. And in the 70s, he even has them team up. It's... Uh, they form one being like the four who are one mm-hmm. and they defeat this Cthulhu, not Cthulhu, but like this Lovecraftian thing from outside of time and space. Yeah. And it was at the time he was trying to retire from writing this stuff. Since then, every single character that he's come up with has gotten shoved into the eternal champion role and it doesn't work. So like one of his best books, uh, Queen Gloriana, the Unfulfilled Queen, Mm-hmm. which is like a tribute to like medieval romance and Gormenghast. And uh, yeah, it's about, but not to be crass, it's about a queen who can't come. Mm-hmm. Like every form of sexual exploit, she is unfulfilled. Yeah. She's apparently the eternal champion. Hmm. My favorite of his characters, uh, Colonel Maximilian Piat, the anti-Semitic Jew, who mm-hmm. is like a side character, a comic relief grotesque, in the Cornelius stories, because he got his own separate series, which is maybe the best thing Moorcock ever wrote, he is treated as the eternal champion. And you're like, really? The cocaine-addicted, borderline pedophilic, fa- uh, fascist-sympathizing, like, evil Forrest Gump mm-hmm. of the early 20th century is any sort of champion like yeah. even like a doomed one or a corrupted one and isn't he existing at the same time as Jerry yeah that, that also becomes a huge problem where you're like we already have one yeah <laughs> we already have one so it, like does the eternal champion appear in Brothel and Rosenstrasse yeah because really? the Brothel and Rosenstrasse is about one of the Von Beck family who again in this case is a sexually addicted borderline, like, pederast, mm-hmm. like a Lolita fixation, let's say, yeah. who doesn't do anything because the brothel in Rosenstrasse is about hunkering down in a brothel during a plague, so it's not like he goes and slays anything. Mm-hmm. But because he's a Von Beck, there you go. And the Von Becks are a whole other thing. He wrote them as their own series. Then in the 90s, he went back and rewrote all of his old work so that they were about the Von Becks. Hmm. And then later on, he regretted that, so he put them back the way they were. And you're like, yeah, like, making every character in the universe part of the same family sounds like a cool idea for five seconds, and then immediately you go, oh, no, that's lame, actually. Like, that's boring. Yeah, just ask the people who make Star Wars movies. 
Yeah, basically. Like, that's, that's a really good analogy. You, know, you could be writing about anything right now, but let's keep it to this one fucking stick of a family tree. Which I think is why stuff like The Mandalorian people like, because it's pretty divorced from like the Star Wars that we know. Like The only connection is that you have Moff Gideon, who's a moth, and the Mando, who's a Mandalorian. Yeah, it's like it, the same world, but... It, and it, you know, it's probably not for me because I'm, I'm not even like that much of a Star Wars guy when you get right down to brass tacks. But if given the option, I'm like, yeah, I probably would rather watch like Mando than that new Obi-Wan series they're working on. Because mm-hmm. I think since at least 1983, what people really wanted was just to play a Star Wars role playing game. Yeah. It wasn't that important if like. Mara Jade and Ahsoka popped up. Mm -hmm. And that absolute just dearth of ideas, or drought of ideas, I mean. Yeah. Like, the inability to come up with a single original concept is what leads you to come up with Palpatine returns somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so the Eternal Champion is like, starts off as a good idea, but like, the longer you do it, the more it gets piled on, the more stepped on it gets, mm-hmm. so that you're not even really getting uh, too high off of it uh, anymore. And actually, your Star Wars analogy is good. I also think of uh, Stephen King, yeah, with the Randall Flagg character, mm-hmm. and sometimes he does this, and sometimes fans do this. But they've like stretched it out so that initially Flagg was awesome, just like the dark man, like this evil drifter. Uh, so well realized in the stand, just bad news on two legs and a jean jacket. Mm-hmm. And it says, like, he had come in different forms throughout history. Like, once he was known as Nyarlathotep. And you're like, okay, you're playing the same game. Like, he's been previous villains. Because isn't he also Walter Odin? Well, that's the problem. Because then he puts him in the Dark Tower as Walter Odin. And if I'm really splitting hairs... He's born Walter, and then he takes on the alias Flag. Mm-hmm. The problem is that he then includes Flag as a separate character. And he then throws in John Farson, the rebel leader, and implies that he's Flag as well. And then Roland Deschain's old uh, like sorcerer trainer that he hated, uh, Martin Broadcloak, is also Flag. So there's a point where you have four flags, including one who worked for another one. Yeah. But aren't they f- just flags from different universes? And that, and like, maybe, but at that point, like, what the hell? Yeah. Like, what are you doing? And, and then, like, you have Pennywise and the Crimson King who are distinct and interesting villains. Mm-hmm. But now people have worked it out so that, no, like, the Crimson King is simply, like, a form of Pennywise in a different universe. And that literally what it comes down to is, cool, now we have one good villain instead of two. I had always, well, What a great magic trick. We have less of something now. I had always thought that in the world of the Dark Tower, they were, like, free-roaming its. Like, they're, like, the entire species lived in that world, and... Well, there, there is a character, uh, Dandelo, who's like a trickster. He's implied to be like the same species as Pennywise, but mm-hmm. of like a lesser order. So that, that's not like a bad idea, but when you just start going like, everyone's everything. Yeah. 
cool. So one hero, one villain. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah. It, it would suck if you had like a bunch of like, like 800 characters with motivations. Then you'd have garbage like Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. I prefer it when everybody's just a different type of white lizard. Yeah. But anyways, go on. Um, now it's time to talk about the women, the women in uh, oh, Eric's yeah. life, such as Zarazenia, if I'm getting it right, Michelle and Yashanya. Yeah. I got it right. But in as much as you can. I think Borkok has gone on the record saying he's not picky about the pronunciations, mm-hmm. which is good because some of the spellings are bananas. Yeah. <laughs> um, because yeah, What can I tell you about it? Because with... Uh, they're mentioned in Hawkwind's songs, like uh, in the song Moonblum, they say Maishla, now replacing Queen Yashanya. Yeah. And they write a whole song about Zarazenia, and I really like that one. Mm-hmm. It's very beautiful, very sexy, very interesting. So, Yeah, that's, that's actually very sad. because uh, So Elric's love life in brief. Uh, first of all, he hooks up a decent number of times. Uh, and because Morcott goes back and adds books within the continuity, uh, say so he's like plugging in like holes here and there, uh, he's gotten better over the decades about introducing more female characters, but then that usually means that, you know, not that this is all they are, but usually Alric ends up sleeping with them. Mm-hmm. So in a later novel, like The Fortress of the Pearl or The Revenge of the Rose, it's like there's a, like a strong female character, but they can fuck. Kind, um, kind of a bit like Bond. Yeah, he's not he's not a full on like dog like Bond. Mm-hmm. And for somebody who ends up killing as many women as he does, Elric is not particularly misogynistic. Like it's not like a defining aspect of his character. But uh, yeah, he does love him and leave him. And mm-hmm. the women in his life, much like the men, are usually not better off for having met him. Uh, in brief, he has uh, his. Like sister cousin Cimmeril, back when he's still serving as the doomed emperor of Mel She's the one who ends up getting killed during his duel with uh, Yarkun. Uh, in it was the first story ever published, but if you read these in most anthologies, this won't happen until the third book. So nice and confusing. Michelle and Yashana, uh, they're cool, but they, he just like encounters them. Mm-hmm. It's like all these little, like, adventures that he goes off on, so they're just sort of in there somewhere. I know one of them has a big mechanical bird, so that's really cool. And then uh, Zarazinia is the one who made an honest man out of him. Hmm. Yeah, finally, towards the end of his adventures, Elric settles down, he marries uh, Zarazinia, who's a typical exotic beauty, and she is then later killed during the grand finale of the series, uh, Stormbringer after his sword. Mm-hmm. She is captured by uh, the dark wizards of Pontong. She is turned into a half-human, half-slug hybrid. It turns us into a giant That is the best part of the stupid narration and the, the concert film Jeremy describes. There's some guy who goes like, ah, ha, ha. I have turned Zanazidia to a giant slug Elric. <laughs> Why did you run the last two words together? Mm-hmm. To be a comment there. Uh, but yeah, she's horribly mutated and essentially gets like a mercy killing. And 
she dies, but a uh, spoiler alert with Stormbringer, everybody dies. <laughs> the, the world dies at the end is, of Stormbringer. Is that the final fight? That's the final fight. Yeah. And the Horn of Fate. If I if I remember correctly, Stormbringer Stormbringer already had sentience, right? Stormbringer has always been sentient. But uh, he and his sister or his sister or brother Blade, uh Morn Blade. But uh apparently he gains like a humanoid body that like his his blade form becomes like a humanoid body or something, something like that. It takes on a shape which is Stormbringer itself is a black rune sword mm-hmm. covered with red wound, red runes that glow when it hungers. And so uh, do, do I just give it away? Yeah. 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 The last two creatures left as the world is wiped out and renews itself. Uh, it's Elric and Moonglum and Elric Without meaning to, Stormbringer leaps up and kills Moonglum. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, it turns itself on Elric. And Stormbringer takes a shape, which is essentially the sword in human shape. So it's like obsidian with red outlining. Mm-hmm. And then it has the great line where it says, uh, Farewell, brother. I was a thousand times more evil than you. And it disappears into the sky. And when the new world is reborn, Stormbringer is reborn as... Essentially, like, like the avatar of all evil, like the uh, Chernabog or Aramon. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, yeah, you know, like Manichaean figures where like one entity represents all evil. Yeah, that's the idea behind it. Yeah. So, like, it w- it wouldn't be analogous to Satan. Yeah, sure. What? Yeah, I mean, yeah. In so far as like it's. The new source of evil and even the gods have been wiped out at this point. Mm-hmm. That's a whole other thing about Elric and Morcock that's cool is the Chaos Lords. Yeah. Uh, but Jerry Cornelius' needle gun is not associated with Stormbringer, is it? Not so much. It fulfills the same role. So, like, in the story, Elric stabs Cimmeril by accident with Stormbringer. Mm-hmm. In the Jerry Cornelius novels, he accidentally shoots Catherine with the needle gun. Mm-hmm. She's, like, caught in the crossfire. So, narratively, it serves the same purpose, but, uh, it had, like, the needle gun is not especially significant. It's cool, but, like, he even replaces it with other guns later. And, and people have actually pointed out that in terms of personality, uh, Cornelius's kind of girlfriend, Mrs. Brunner, Mm-hmm. Is maybe more Stormbringer than any weapon that he has, because hmm. yeah. she has the kind of negative influence on him. It's interesting. I feel like this is making things more confusing rather than less for anybody who's never read the books. But whatever, I'm having fun. Um, who are? I'm not asking you to name all of them. Who are some of the major villains? Because I know Yerkun is one, and. You know, in the song, they mention uh, Thaleb Karna, yeah. but you said he's not in it that much? Thaleb Karna's in it for a while. <laughs> um, he's the most recurring villain out of all of them. It's kind of a bad penny or something? Yeah, which is one reason I like him. Uh, so, no particular order. Uh, Yerkun is, again, like Elric's evil cousin and the usurper, 
And at the end of the first novel, Elric defeats him, but then decides to let him rule in his stead till he gets back, which is the stupidest thing I've ever seen a character do in a book. Like, everything that happens after that is totally deserved by how bad a decision that is. Yeah, and in one comic adaption, he looks weirdly like Carrot Top. Yeah. By the way, I do apologize for being so snuffly today. It's kind of inevitable. Uh, but... So yeah, you have Yarkoon. Uh He encounters characters here and there throughout the books. Uh, the main villain in uh, Stormbringer is the Chaos Priest uh, Jagreed Larn, who does fine, but he doesn't have a ton of personality. Yeah, like Thulson he's more of a he's plot not. device. He's a little bit more of a plot device. Like he, he's he's not even bad, but like the book should have the all-time great villain. Since yeah. it's like the big finale. And it is probably the best of the novels, too. He's serviceable. Mm-hmm. Now, with uh, Tale of Karna, he's just this wizard who is infatuated with uh, Yashana, I believe. And so he's a bad penny. He constantly turns up. He's an instigator. He's pretty competent as a villain in his own way. But the thing is, El- like he's a sorcerer. And Elric is a sorcerer. Yeah, the dragon yeah, lord. Like, he's actually a like very accomplished sorcerer, even though he, you know, you look at him and he's meant to be like the D and D archetype for like a knight or whatever. Yeah, and the song. There's even the song Elric the Enchanter. Yeah, so that's what makes it funny is that you have the guy who is just a wizard, and then his archenemy who's a a much better wizard and b also a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. So Delacarne is very outclassed, so he just kind of goes on the run. Ends up being a thorn in Elric's side, and then eventually it flips where he's trying to get away, but Elric is pursuing him because he's sick of this shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, uh, Taylor Karn ends up recurring through, like, about half a dozen of the stories. Maybe not that many, but almost, like, uh, kind of chronologically in order, if not mm-hmm. publication order. And I always thought of him as just, like, the wily coyote of the series. Okay. And I think that's the distinction, like, there are much, much more threatening villains, but they're either immortal, or they get taken care of quickly. Mm-hmm. Dale Carter is the thing of, like, the only one that comes back. It's the same where there's never, like, recurring villains and Punisher stories, because yeah. he would just kill them. Yeah. Yeah. Dale Carter has the distinction of actually having a couple of rematches, uh, which he never ends up winning. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, it kind of uh, reminds me of, it, and I was pretty enthusiastic about pulp stories uh, a few years ago, and, uh, and when I was young. Um, I think it was some of the characters that the pulp heroes, because they would usually either take out their enemies permanently or their enemies would fall under some fate of their own. But uh, I think of, like, with Doc Savage, he had John Sunlight, who was yeah. the only guy to come back. You had uh, Shiwan Khan, who was the only guy to refight Shadow. Um, even with Conan, you had, like, I think it was Kulan Goth. Yeah. Was that the, he was the guy? That was one that? of them, I think. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, the, these classic heroes, when you look at them, don't have much of a rogues gallery to speak of. 
Which is why, like, Moriarty gets elevated to archenemy status, even though he's only in two stories. Mm-hmm. It's why, you know, Lupin the Third, which I love, yeah. but they realize past a certain point, like, oh, we've been doing this for 50 years, and we have, like, maybe three name villains. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, we, we don't have that deep a bench of antagonists. So, uh, so, yeah, those are the main bad guys in Elric. In later stories, which take place throughout the continuity, but were written later. Uh, he, Moorcock does introduce uh, the character uh, Gaynor the Damned, and he's essentially the anti-champion, like the fallen champion. Mm-hmm. So he's a doomed knight. Uh, he always wears like a helmet, and it's implied that underneath it, his face is just like writhing chaos all the time. And uh, he's meant to be like the opposite number to the eternal champion. Mm-hmm. Like, he's doomed to always recur in a villain role and never quite succeed. Again, like, the first couple times he pops up, it's a really cool idea. But by the end of the whole cycle, after, like, decades of this, it gets to the point where he's the only villain. Like, yeah. any time there, like, there's a story, he pops up as the bad guy. Yeah, Gaynor is the only villain by the end of the series, which ends up becoming a little bit tedious. Um, and then, <coughs> you really might want to edit around that. Okay. Um, Now, some of the other uh, books have much, much uh, better villains, though. So, mm-hmm. in the uh, Quorum novels, he ends up facing uh, the Chaos Lords themselves. So, uh, Ariok, who's Elric's patron Chaos Lord. The Duke of Hell. The Duke of Hell. He's actually kind of a mid-tier villain in Quorum. He's the Knight of Swords. Then, uh, one up from him is uh, the Queen of Swords, uh, Ziembarg. And then the, the greatest threat is uh, Mabel Road, the Faceless. He's the embodiment of chaos, so he has no features. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's the King of Swords, so the head of the Pantheon. They're pretty cool. Then in the Hawkmoon books, uh, Hawkmoon is by far the most boring of the Eternal mm-hmm. Champions. Just absolutely nothing of a character. Um, and the only thing that kind of redeems his stories, which they are, they're probably the most like, point and click out of all the stories. Yeah. Um, we'll talk about Moorcock's writing process some other time, but he literally cranked the trilogy out in about a week. Because I know that he would write yeah. constantly. Yeah, the, he could produce something like uh, 50,000 words a day. So, hmm. uh, it's somewhere in like 30,000, 30, which means you could knock out a novel in three days. Uh, so yeah, he people will ask him about Hawkmoon and he'll go like, I wrote those in a week in 1964, and I haven't reread them, and I don't think about them. So you'd know better than I would. It, it almost reminds me of the fact that James Gunn wrote the movie The Specials in a week. Which kind of shows. Yeah. <laughs> no, I really like that movie. Um, but yeah, Hawkmoon's redeemed by having the best stable of villains, which is the evil nation of uh, Grand Breton, which is... Well, this is a nice choice by Moorcock to fuck with people. 
this was published just like 20 years after World War II. Yeah. Hawkmoon and his friends, uh, he comes from like a post-apocalyptic version of Germany. Hmm. And then the villains are the British in this, as hmm. they are in real life these days. Hmm. Uh, so yeah, Grand Breton, uh, it's part of like a deeply rigid caste system. Everyone belongs to a different social order and everybody wears masks. So it is considered like the height of rudeness and an unforgivable social faux pas if you don't wear a mask when you're around other people. Just like now? A little bit, yeah. Smarty pants. Uh, but what makes them really cool is that like the, uh, so like the aviators wear crow masks. The ground infantry and like the nobles wear uh, wolf masks. And so there's like the order of the uh, the bear, the order of the snake. Like everyone has different things. And they're like a fascist society. So they're like either like propagandists or soldiers. Yeah. Um, I think the scientist class are like the orders of the locust or something. So they have like bug heads. So it's, it's all... And I don't want to say that any animal is evil because they're not that doesn't apply to them yep. but these are animals that throughout history have, have been, been villainized has been villainized like rats bugs for spiders the, for the most part I, there's probably like some nice ones in there too but uh, and then the the coolest one it's not an order it's just the what the guy wears the head scientist in Grand Breton uh, his head is a uh, cuckoo clock hmm. so that's just like a very cool like kind of China Mieville-esque visual yeah and it's a mask, but his like head is inside of the clock. So. Is it? Does it operate? I think it. It probably feels like a missed opportunity if it doesn't. Yeah. So yeah, it's just. It sounds like, very Terry Gilliam. Kind of Gilliam esque. Kind of reminds me of Mysterio. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm partial to designs like that. And yeah, so throughout his other works, he comes up with some very good villains. And again, Gloriana. He has Captain Choir, who is like his version of Steerpike. So there's some good ones. Uh, with Elric, it's like, it's tricky because there's some good bad guys, but ultimately they're like 5% more evil than Elric himself. And it's implied that Stormbringer is the actual greatest threat to his happiness rather than some punk wizard that he has to plow through. Yeah. So, yeah. And you said that Moonblum is one of the for lack of a better term, the Eternal Companions. Mm-hmm. So, does he have other? Do, do the Eternal Champion have others? Yeah, they each have one. Um, usually, Moonglum's the best one. Mm-hmm. So, in Corum, he has a Jerry O'Connell, and at that point, like, he's the companion who knows he's the companion. Mm-hmm. So that he's like, I am like a bard and a companion to, to champions. So, Mm-hmm. That's a fun idea, but he's, he's just kind of, like, there most of yeah. the time. Somebody for the hero to talk to. Uh, and then Hawkmoon has, like, a bunch of friends, but most of them aren't that interesting. Uh, oh, no, there, there's two that are kind of cool. Hawkmoon has a Count Brass, who's kind of like a Falstaffian figure. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Willem de Verc, who's only really interesting because he used to be a bad guy. Mm-hmm. He's the order. He's a Frenchman. He's the order of the boar. And he mm-hmm. used to work in Grand Breton. And then when they, like, rescue him at sea, he's like, yeah, screw it. Like, you guys seem like the winning side, so I'll just... <laughs> yeah. So he, I kind of like that. Yeah, he's, a, like, he's literally introduced, like, he's on a raft. And they're like, we only have provisions for one. He goes, 
that won't be a problem. And he pushes the other guys into the ocean and then goes, like, climbs aboard their boat. So he's, like, a likable rake. Which, when you compare his personality traits to uh, Hawkmoon's, which don't exist, he does end up being a pretty fun character. But yeah, out of all the companions, uh, Moonglum is by far the most interesting. He's, he's like stocky, but long-armed and legged. So like that kind of body. Somebody described him as having a body like a spider. Yeah, that's where, about it. Like the kind of, yeah, the, the barrel torso with like... But then he's also like very like nimble and yeah. like long-armed. Pretty good fighter. Uh, red-haired, uh, described as being, like, pleasantly ugly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can picture this character, like, again, kind of a stock, sidekick sort of character you'd see in, like, a medieval movie or an old play. Uh, right now, I'm just imagining, uh, Willem Dafoe's Jester character from The Northman. Not a million miles away, although, you know, it's not quite the same thing. But, uh, yeah, and Moonglove is just kind of has a somewhat sardonic sense of humor and is pretty good-natured. And uh, th- that's his role. He's, you know, he's the Sancho Panza to Alric's Quixote. Yeah. And Sancho's, you know, the best character in Quixote. He yeah. has all the best lines. Mugwam is usually the most fun character in the stories. And uh, I think... We, I forget what it was, like, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about one character as being comic relief. Do you remember this? Mm-hmm. And I made the point, comic relief doesn't mean that, like, you throw in a bunch of <coughs> shitty jokes and ruin the mood. It means use the character to break the tension. Like, yeah, it's, it's the guy that, like, lets things, like, brings it back down to reality. It, yeah, it, it reminds me of... Uh... The Flash, but in the uh, Snyder Cut, that's what I think of. Like, he, he does have funny lines where it's like, I know what we're all thinking, but I don't want to say it. And then Cyborg shows the Superman hologram and he goes, thanks. <laughs> like, that, that's a funny moment to me. Yeah, even, even in the Snyder Cut, I'm not a big fan of the Ezra Miller Flash, but I, I do know what you mean. Uh, but yeah, so... The thing is, without Moonglub, Elric is already a ridiculous figure. Like mm-hmm. he's, he's so Byronic and so doomed, and his exploits are so Wagnerian, and, and just like this grim, pale, black-clad man who cannot be loved and never smiles. I always kind of thought yeah. of him I always kind of thought of him as emo Conan. Yeah, basically, and the result of that is, like, the same way it's very, very difficult to take emo and goth completely seriously. Even emos and goths don't do that? Yeah, and you could could call Elric kind of, like, proto-grimdark as, like, Mm -hmm. the artistic movement. And the point of grimdark is, like, it's fun because it's camp. Yeah. Like, it's fun because you know that it's like, I will drink your blood perched upon a throne of skulls. Yeah. And women Very will... Very clock. Women, yeah, women will sing of the day when your huts sprouted hair like flames. And like, and it's like, yeah, that, that's, that's the point. The person writing this knows that this is what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. 
Elric left to his own devices becomes ridiculous because of how how sinister and how grim and depressing he is. Yeah. By throwing in a character who's there to kind of take the piss, it undercuts that. It actually makes like it keeps Elric on a more even keel. Mm-hmm. And you would rather have Elric being ridiculed by a friend than being ridiculed by the nature of the story itself. Yeah. Because when that happens, you can't enjoy the story anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that's quite literally, like I think almost word for word, how Moorcock once described it. He said, like, the Eternal Companion is there to take the piss out of the Eternal Champion when he starts to get too serious. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean the stories aren't serious and, like, have stakes and aren't satisfying, it keeps them from becoming uh, pathetic, like becoming ludicrously overwrought. Yeah. Yeah. And and, uh, for what it's worth, Moorcock himself is like a very, seems like a very down-to-earth individual. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I mean, he's like, very well read and like yeah I'm, I'm sure he can like come off as like pompous in interviews I think he could certainly you know talk your ear off mm-hmm. but he's he ultimately feels kind of cool because like he doesn't take this shit too seriously yeah he's very much the guy who when fans would come up to him and go like wow like this is so great and like you really inspired me to do this this and this he's the one who would go like do you have a girlfriend <laughs> like it's like so, settle down a little bit because mm-hmm. and he said that was like he and like his generation and some of his colleagues, they wanted to capture like the thought of these stories without the like, oh my god, like it, it's fucking fantasy. Like you don't have to take it this yeah. seriously. You don't have to learn like a thousand languages to read a book like with Tolkien. Yeah, and it's and you know that's one of the things I like about Tolkien, but it, it is true. You're like Moorcock doesn't take this stuff as seriously as you do. Terry Pratchett doesn't take this as seriously as you do. Lovecraft did not take this stuff as seriously as you do. Like, I don't think Alan Moore does. Yeah, I, I same thing. Like, I sometimes see people portraying him as like this is a grim, grouchy old man. No, he's just like a fucking smart aleck punk. That's why I like him. Yeah, yeah. What like read anything that's not about a rapist superhero, and like he actually has like tremendous sense of humor and playfulness about his stuff, but you wouldn't fucking know that because you began with Watchmen and ended with V and didn't do anything else. He strikes me as uh, what a punk should age into. Kind of. Like, you can't be a punk forever. No, you can't. You just... Johnny Rotten showing us that. (laughs) But, uh... Yeah, Alan Moore. That's how Alan Moore strikes me, like... He's what punks age into. Yeah, ideally, because if you don't turn into that, like an old... What's the line from Austin Powers? Like, there's nothing more pathetic than an aging hipster. Yeah. Nothing in the world is less cool than a punk trying to make you think he's cool. Yeah. So that's that's where you get, like, the Gavin McGinnis's of the world going, like, hey, guys, you, you know what would actually be, like, anti-authority is if we all became like weird Catholic assholes. You know, when you think about the right is the real real counterculture. Hey guys, you you know what would be like go like against the orthodoxy? If we all voted like our grandparents. Yeah. Yeah. 
Hey, you know what's really cool? Is like picking on suicidal teenagers and then uh, sucking the dick of the most powerful man in the world. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the way a punk would. Yeah. Yeah, punks famously love the richest people on earth. Yeah. yeah. I, I joke, but they probably do because 90% of a punk show is like rich kids. Mm-hmm. Check out this leather jacket that I, my mom spent $900 on. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, it's just a digression there, I suppose. You mentioned more, or you did or I did. Uh, he and Markok are actually friends. Yeah. And it's neat because, and we'll probably do this as an episode, but in uh, the movie that Alan Moore wrote, the show, that's the name of the movie, um, there's a Cornelius in there. Yeah. He throws it at Cornelius, and the uh, Corneliuses uh, are also appear in the uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen series, which, yeah. to be clear, like a lot of people appear in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Yeah, Jerry gives Mina the uh, needle gun. Yeah, but and but, she shoots James Bond with it. But that's the thing; every other character has to be like either kind of cagely presented. It's like it's Voldemort, but we can't say the name. Yeah, we just can't call James Bond Jimmy. Yeah. Agent Jimmy. Or they're in copyright. Uh, Moorcock, along with Ian Sinclair, is one of the few creators who went, oh, just just use it. Just put Jerry Cornelius in your your book. Yeah. And like, and he does that because he and Moore are friends, but another thing I like about Michael Moorcock, he is free use to the point of insanity with some of this stuff. Yeah. So, like... I've known people, like, had a, uh, knew somebody once who did, like, an Elric portrait and wanted to post it online, and they even asked permission, and he said, like, yeah, you know, as long as you, like, you know, copyright Michael Moorcock in the corner or something, like, I, I don't care. Didn't you do that when Yoshitaka Amano yeah. made the, uh, what was it, the White Prince or something? Yeah, so there, there was a Japanese knockoff called Prince Alban. It's very clever, like Prince Albino, right? Mm-hmm. And it is, uh, it's the best Elric. I think Albino's style is yeah. perfectly suited to Elric. We're looking at a picture of it right now, it's gorgeous. And when they finally released like the Eternal Champion Library in England in the 90s, Albino did all of the covers, mm-hmm. or like 90% of them or something. So yeah, his art style is perfect. Like Elric should look like, you know, a Final Fantasy VI character anyways. Yeah. They released this beautiful statue, like this little maquette thing. And then it got back to Moorcock, and they were like, oh, is he going to sue? And he said, no, I, I love this. Like, I, I, I want this to be available because I think it's so cool. Just don't rip me off. Like, like give me credit for it. Call it Elric, but just be upfront about it. Mm-hmm. And this has led to weird stuff. Like, one of the reasons why... Elric is in first edition Dungeons and Dragons is because Warcock was like, yeah, go ahead. And then it like came back to bite him in the ass because then there was like an officially licensed Elric. Yeah. Like through Chaosium, they did like the mm-hmm. Stormbringer role-playing game. And like almost to a fault, he seems very much like, no, it's it's cool. Just be sure you mention like it's my character. Other than that, like, I don't care if you like sell t-shirts of it or whatever but yeah lo and behold people take advantage of his good nature and yeah end up fucking with it and he actually mentioned uh, it was having conversation with Terry Pratchett 
the metaphor they used, they said, uh, fantasy and creativity, it's a big cauldron. It's a big stew pot. You take some out, but you have to put You take spice. some out, and then you put something back in. And he said, that's how I looked at it. That's how Terry looked at it. It only becomes a problem when you have like a whole generation of creators who talk without putting anything back in. Mm-hmm. I think that's... Now, now you don't think, take that in like a kids these days way, but I get what he means, and I think there's something to it. Yeah, I mean, you even look at like uh, Philip Jose Farmer's Walt Newton universe, which is essentially what Moore based the league on, and that has its like that has something where they're all connected by, I think it's like the, the meteor that hits the Earth. Okay. Yeah, that, that's true, actually. Uh, the first of those shared world things, which, again, there's a point beyond which I find that more fun as a game than I do as an actual plot device. Mm-hmm. And I speak as somebody who likes a lot of League, who likes all of Anno Dracula, who mm-hmm. has written some shit like that. I love stuff where it's like, oh, like Dr. Faustus tutored. Prince Hamlet at Wittenberg. Yeah. Okay, that's a cool idea, but like, there is a point beyond which you're like, I don't care if like Tarzan and the Shadow beat up Fu Manchu. Yeah. Like, like I, I get it. Anybody could do this, and people mm-hmm. have done it at this point. Yeah. Um. So we don't have to wrap it up, but we are. I think we're creeping up on an hour now. Uh, I'm glad to get your notes, and most of them seem to be music based. Do we want to hustle through some of them? Yeah, um, the drugs he takes to keep himself awake. What are the, as yeah. the song says, what are the drugs like? Are they, is it like an opiate type thing where you they're drawn from a plant? Never specified. It's just Elric is anemic and uh, like thin blooded, and without stimulation, he wouldn't be able to lift a sword or wear armor or anything. So the only two things he can rely on are either drugs. Mm-hmm. Or Stormbringer feeding energy into him. Yeah, that's why he can lift Stormbringers because it's feeding yeah. him. Which and also Stormbringer is it's like the Might Blade from the the book The Scar. Stormbringer kind of does what Stormbringer wants. Yeah, Elric's just kind of holding on to it past a certain point. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so not too subtly, Stormbringer ends up becoming a metaphor for addiction because. Mm-hmm. Like, seemingly half the stories end with Elric casting it aside, and then it comes back. There's one, he throws it into the water, and it just balances on the surface, like, waiting for him to retrieve it. <laughs> There's one where he gets rid of it, but when he goes, uh, like, uh, you know, a couple nights later, he goes down to an armory, and he finds it sitting with all the other pieces. So it's like, he can't be rid of it, and it won't be rid of him. So, okay. Yeah. Um... Who and what is the Sea King? It's just an elemental. Uh, yeah, in the book Elric of Melnibane, which is... That's already, like, you kind of got to get a running start with that name, and especially when my nostrils don't work. Yeah. That's a mouthful. Uh, but yeah, chronologically, the first of the Elric books, uh, publication order, I think it was, like, the third or fourth, didn't come out until the 70s, like after the character had been around for a full decade. But it's sort of an origin story for Elric, and there are four elemental characters. 
So there's like an earth king, a sea king. Yeah. Nothing else to it. Not Yeah. Yeah, kind of cool, probably fun to draw, not an especially developed idea. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm more interested in, uh, there's like the gods of animals. Yeah. So like Miraclaw, the god of cats, and the god of lizards, which is a fucking joke, but it is in there. There's the band... And I I knew the band Tigers of Pantang. I knew their, that they were a band. I didn't know that it was a reference to uh, Elric. Uh-huh. There's the island of Pantang, which is famous for its tigers, apparently. Famous for its wizards. And hmm. I guess there are some tigers there as well. Right. But yeah, Pantang is like the Elric version of Skull Amounts. It's like where the like dark magicians go to study. Okay. Um... What exactly is three things? Shadegate, the Dreaming City, and the Pulsing Cavern? The Dreaming City is Melnibonet. Melnibonet. <laughs> Whenever I try and say it, it's like, I have a cob. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, uh, that, but that is the Dreaming City. It's been the capital of the world for like 10,000 years or something. Like some preposterous number. And I think even, I'll look it up, but even Elric himself, like the character's full name is like Elric, like the 723rd or some joke like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and then it's, Elric's the one that finally brings it down. And uh, then the Young Kingdoms, which is everywhere else on Earth, like flow in, seize the power vacuum. So that's the big one. It's the name of the first Elric story that was ever published, too. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the Shade Gate and the Pulsing Cavern are, they're just, like, poor. The Pulsing Cavern, I think, is where they actually find the Rune Blades. Mm-hmm. They're nothing. I'm not, like, trying to rain on your parade. They're nothing. They're just counter-commentary. Yeah. You know, like, Skull Mountain, like that kind of thing. I had always... The Pass of Death. <laughs> I had always thought that Shade Gate was, like, a portal. Like, that's the only way you can get to Melnibonet. No, it's... It's... It is like a portal that I think leads to the Pulsing Cavern or something, but I forget exactly the con- content there. I think they just picked it, like Hawkwind just used it as a title so that they could do some guitar noodling. Mm-hmm. Okay, I looked it up. Elric the Eighth, uh, 428th Emperor of Mount so. <laughs> That's neat. Yeah. Um, in the... Uh, in the concert film I saw, one of the moments that gets a big reaction is Elric goes behind a big screen to fight a villain, and he comes out wearing the villain's armor, and I think it's red. Is that any connection with something in the books? Not that I know of, actually. That uh, It's probably like some scene or another. Uh, I'm getting if like Jock Green Laird has crimson armor, but if it's a plot point, it's an extraordinarily all right. Yeah. Um, the steel bird, what's that? That's just the bird that is either Michelle or Yashana has just like a mechanical bird covered in jewels. Mm-hmm. Just, again, just like a cool idea. Something faintly like Arabian Nights about it. Oh, so- almost sounds like Booba. Yeah, that, yeah, and that's, again, I'm not trying to like hand wave, like give me some better questions, but a good chunk of like, 
what you're gonna ask me about, like so Stormbringer significant, Moonglove, Arioch are significant, stuff like uh like oh like what are the young kingdoms or like what what's like the dead god's book, like it it's like a thing. It's a it's a D and D item. Mm-hmm. Or just like a giant bird. Uh a giant metal bird. Uh okay. Yeah, like the blonde girl meme, like the <laughs> yeah, it's it's just like bearing in mind that he would write these things in a weekend. It's just uh, kind of an effulsive outpouring of like, well, what what's like a cool fun idea? What what if there was like a city where there are nothing but beggars? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what what if there was like a like a warrior made of swords? Like there that is that something that's something. Let's go. And I'm assuming that uh, one of my favorite lines, the line that sticks with me, is uh, an Alarcan Enchanter is frozen in a time trap, slowly losing power, frightened if he makes a move, his dream will soon turn sour. Is is the time trap anything? I think it's just him suffering from ennui. Oh. I I don't... Yeah. When I heard it, I thought it was something like, you know, the thing that Bengi throws at D, where he's just... Lost in time and space. So, yeah. Uh, not to be a dick, let's hustle through a couple, whatever your last ones are. The final fight is the showdown at the end of Stormbringer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dragon Lord just refers to uh, Elric. Uh, he's the Lord of Dragons. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that gives Melnibane its power, is that they command dragons. Uh, the, now there is a trick for every day that a dragon is active it has to sleep for a century hmm. so that's the explanation of why it, they don't just bust them out and it's kind of a story breaker Yeah, but yeah so he's the dragon lord uh, and what else can I tell you um, and you told me that Stormbringer kills Elric Stormbringer kills Elric yeah, yeah. uh one of the things I like about the, uh, that I said that I liked about the concert footage is, uh, Michael Moorcock does a lot of the incidental narration between the songs, like in the live version, which I think is neat. Yeah, he's, he's always been, like, a big rock and roll guy, so he's done his own music, which never, you know, quite takes off. Wasn't it Deep Fix? He did Deep Fix, which they have like an album or two, and there's like there's some good songs. I really like their Brothel and Rosenstrasse song. Yeah, it's a good one, one of his best books and one of his best songs. But I, I think it's like may, maybe there's another world where like if he got to do whatever he wanted, he'd be like Jimi Hendrix. Uh, I think it was just you know he made his money writing, but then also really liked rock and roll and prog and everything too. So he's worked with Hawkwind and Blue Oyster Cult and all these other bands. The thing that almost reminds me of is like how Alan Moore did a lot of stuff with the Flash Girls and how... With David J as well. David J as well and how uh, basically on every Amanda Palmer album there's Neil doing some bit of singing or voice. Yeah, it's, it really does amount to that. And so when they did a whole concept album on Chronicle of the Black Sword, which weirdly enough, he hardly has any songwriting credits on. Hmm. He wrote for, uh, I think it's Warriors at the End of Time, 
one of their previous albums, which is not about Elric. So make of that what you will. But yeah, when they did like the the stage show, he reads his. Uh, well, you don't have to call it poetry. Yeah, but we could call it like framing pieces. Monstrous men and men like monsters. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm not to uh, knock your selection of cues there, but it seems like a lot of this is drawn from uh, just you heard these albums. Yeah, well, and we're yeah. wondering uh, for a bit more detail. I mean, what maybe we can get a little more. Uh, if that's like your checklist done, we can get a little more organic with it. Like, yeah, what can I tell you about like publication? History, characters, you name it. There's actually one more thing about the actual stories themselves I want to know. Yeah. Uh, what is Tanlorn? Tanlorn is meant to be uh, paradise. It's meant to... Is it like a Shangri-La type thing? It's meant to be like an Eden. or Well, Eden implies that like you started there and left, whereas Shangri-La is like... You, you start there? Yeah, you ascend to it. So that is probably like a better... Metaphor. It's meant to be like a Shangri-La, like a paradise, a place for you know heroes and normal people alike to settle. And again, it's it's very weird because when it's first mentioned, it's in semi-mythical terms, mm-hmm. and it's like tan- distant Tanalorn, like we we quest for Tanalorn. Yeah, that's hope, a Blind Guardian yeah. song. And then because that's the name of what at the time was supposed to be the final uh, Eternal Champion book in the 70s when they all team up. Mm-hmm. The final book was The Quest for Town Lord. And uh, the implication was that it, it was like the hero's ultimate reward. And without literalizing it, it was the implication is like implies death as well. It, it yeah. fulfills the same function as like heaven. I was going to say, like, the Grey Havens. Oh, yeah. And, like, where it's, like, it's an actual physical place, and it's kind of spelled out in the Silmarillion. But also... And you're ostensibly dead. Ostensibly, it's like, yeah, you you sail to the Grey Havens, and it's that undiscovered country from which no man returns. Mm-hmm. Initially, Tantalorn is introduced in terms like that. But I am no man. Takes off helmet. Yeah, yeah, the, so, something like that, and so it's it's almost like as much a state of mind as it is a place. Mm-hmm. And then the more he writes about it, the more it gets concretized and becomes like, no, it's just a place. It's just like a nice place, and like Elric goes and stays there, but he gets kind of bored, and then he goes outside and sees that Telepkarna has like an army of Komodo dragons, and they're going to sack the kingdom. And he, like, who am I to judge? But when you get to that point, you're like, that's less interesting when it's, yeah. when it's just like a nice place. You know what I mean? Because initially it was like Shangri-La and, and Eden and Satori and all these things. Mm-hmm. And then after a couple of stories, it's like, no, it's, it's Copenhagen. Nice. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, but... I mean, well, I mean, there's a wealth of characters. I certainly have my opinions on, like, which ones are good and which ones are bad, and you know, the multiverse and everything else. Uh, I mean, if you prick me, I will bleed an opinion about those. 
Um, let's see. Is there anything that you? <laughs> like, yeah. Is there anything that you would like to throw in? <laughs> wow. <laughs> this feels like uh, when Chief Pryor ripped up the note cards on uh, inside the actor's studio. Um, yeah. Uh, they. I don't know. I, I've kind of thrown in my two cents. Uh, I like Elric, but. It's one of the, he's one of those characters where I sometimes like the idea of it almost more than the stories. Yeah. So like I said, there are a lot of the uh, kind of uh, pulp characters that are like that. Like yeah. Well, there's one character, the Green Llama, who his scarf is he like he uses it as a weapon, like a grappling or choking device, like a long range weapon. I've always thought. Oh, that's a really neat thing. Yeah. Uh, so Elric, I mean, it's it's a great design. It's a great weapon. Uh, and the initial conception was just like, how can I come up with a fantasy character that is the opposite of Conan in every single way? Mm-hmm. So self-doubting rather than self-assured. Um, like kind of cultured, but unprincipled, whereas Conan is like brutish, but has like his own code of behavior. Yeah. And he's so, perfectly happy being a brute. Like, yeah. And like, also, like, that's the thing people overlook, like, in, you know, when they, I think a lot of people don't always know what to do with Conan. Conan is fundamentally like kind of a fun character. Yeah. Co- like... Conan seems like he's having fun being Conan. Like yeah, there, there was the thing that Robert E. Howard said is uh, war is all he knows and war is all he wants to know. Yeah, and so Elric, meanwhile, seemingly hates being Elric. And then, yeah, yeah you just run down like, oh, well tanned? Okay, mine has no pigmentation. Mm-hmm. Uh, my guy's brawny. Well, my guy's skinny. How do you like yeah. that? Um, and Conan is Conan's not stupid, which is another mistake people make. But he's very cunning. To steal to steal a line from uh, Terry Pratchett again, like he's simple in the way that a sword is simple. He yeah. still does what it's supposed to. Mm-hmm. Whereas Elric is full of guile and you know contrarities and all these other things. Um, so the result is like the very earliest Elric stories are pretty readable. They have that, like, youthful energy. Mm-hmm. Again, when, when we stick with the idea that he's, like, a punk character. Yeah. Exactly. So the first two albums are good, and then the ones when you're 50 aren't as good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the first couple are good. Then later on, he adds a couple more, and it's tricky because the second book is Stormbringer, so he's already killed him off, mm-hmm. which means that everything after that has to be a prequel. It's like how the first Jerry Cornelius book was the final program. Yeah, and although Cornelius dies at the end of most of the books. Yeah, so. and, but in final program, he doesn't even die. He turns into the super creature yeah. and just fucks off. Which, weirdly enough, is addressed plot-wise. Really? Yeah. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but, but yeah, with Elric, it's like, okay, Elric in the 60s, pretty bang on. Elric in the 70s, pretty cool. Elric... You know, it lies fallow for a while, then there's some new stuff in the 80s and 90s, and it lacks that urgency. Mm-hmm. And Elric himself feels a little flattened, like he's just any... But by the 80s and 90s, Elric is just, like, dredged. 
Yeah, like probably. like kind of a badass, but they like you you could plug him into any of these stories. Uh, by the time we get to the early two thousands, Moorcock writes the Moonbeam Roads trilogy, which is uh, wasn't Scott Gardner involved in that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, it's the Moonbeam Roads lead to the Dreaming City, so they just collapsed it into the series Dreaming City, which is about characters who are exclusively albinos. <laughs> yeah. So there's more of a connection here than meets the eye. Um, I love Moonbeam City. So those are frankly just kind of bad. And now uh, at the end of this year, coming out for Christmas, there's a new Elric novel. Hmm. And I'm going to read it. Like, yeah. I'm looking forward to it, but I, I'm hoping that it hews a little closer to the classics. And the result is that Moorcock's bibliography is just absolutely bizarre, which I think is one reason he's, like, known but somewhat intimidating. Or you have people who've, like, just read Elric and nothing else. Yeah. It's because the bibliography is so Byzantine. It's like how... What immediately pops into mind is how some people are intimidated by the Marvel movies because they're told in such a weird manner where it's like, well, Captain America happens and then these three movies happen and then Captain America 2 happens and these three movies happen and where it's like, you kind of need like a, a guide to tell you how to watch these in order, like in sequential order. Yeah, as far as the Marvel comparison, I kind of know what you mean, but... Even that, uh, people do that because, you know, anything with Marvel content is going to get clicks. Yeah. But the actual chronology is, is not that weird. Speaking of somebody who hasn't even seen most of them, it's like, yeah, like Captain America takes place before all the movies. And then 50 years later, Captain Marvel happens because it's in the 90s, right? Mm-hmm. And then everything else is like basically in sequential order, isn't it? Yeah. So I, I, I guess they're going to be doing like resets and shit like that. You can always tell a story's good when uh, it has to have backsies. Yeah. But, it's like uh, what people said about Age of Ultron where it's like, well, you have to watch a few seasons of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. to realize what's going on. It's no, like, you don't. no, you don't. Like Black Widow tells us what's going on at the, begin- at the very beginning of Age of Ultron. No, not like none of that matters. And like may- maybe at this point it's going to get like, needlessly complicated and like you will have to have watched Loki on Disney Plus or whatever. Mm-hmm. But the films themselves, I've seen people make those charts and that's literally all it's like Captain America, Captain Marvel, everything else in chronological order. Yeah. And it's just like, oh well uh like uh Guardians two takes place like six months after Guardians one. Mm-hmm. Okay, but that doesn't, like, the next time you see them, they're just bobbing around in the ship and they pick Thor up. Like, yeah. it doesn't matter if they've been cruising for five months or five years. Like, it doesn't disrupt the chronology. Yeah. So, and also, again, you guys are just going to, like, you, you know, hit the reset on anything you want to, so who cares? <laughs> um, so, yeah, back to Moorcock. He, uh, he writes this stuff just in, you know, for love or money. And really mm-hmm. produces a tremendous amount of material. Then in the 90s, he gets the opportunity to revise everything, but he like over-revises it. Yeah. It ends up being too cohesive. 
Mm-hmm. And then when it gets republished like a decade or two later, he regrets those decisions. So he has things lapsed back into how they originally appeared. Yeah. Uh, so it's just like, you will go mad trying to thread the needle on all the inconsistencies, which fortunately, I'm not one of those people. Like, we've talked about it, this, where, where it's yeah. like, like, does Mad Max Fury Road takes place before Thunderdome? And I'm like, I don't know. It's not fun. They're good. <laughs> it's, it matters more to me. Um, but with these, yeah, they, like, there's no point trying to reconcile all the different plot points. And then the other thing with Moorcock is that he keeps retiring. Mm-hmm. So he produced, like, you know, scores of books up until about 1975. And then he said, I'm putting fantasy to bed. I've wrapped up each of my series. I did a big crossover. Mm-hmm. I wrote Gloriana, which is like self-contained, which is like his single best fantasy novel. Mm-hmm. So like, uh, that's like my magnum opus. Now I'm ready to go write some other stuff. And he tries, and within like five years, he gets in a messy divorce, and uh, he's having financial troubles. So he's like, "Fuck it, I'll write some more Elric books." Yeah, and then he starts like he writes some more of those. And then he starts trying to, like, what if I could reconcile my more thoughtful writing, like uh, my books about, like, Colonel Piot or, like, Breakfast in the Ruins and Behold the Man? What if I kind of collapse those in with my fantasy stuff? And it was an idea at the time. It doesn't actually work, but then, like, he does yeah. that. So there's at least three different Elric novels that are the conclusion of the Eternal Champion saga. Okay. And the problem is each new one is worse than the previous one, like mm. quality-wise. So you're like, you might maybe just want to read these in chronological order. Yeah. And interestingly enough, there's a million different versions, editions of Elric. The best ones, which out of print might be expensive, but a, 10 plus years ago, uh, Del Rey yeah. put out the complete... El- yeah. They put out the complete Elric collection... Which is funny because the moment they put out the last book, he wrote some new stories. Mm. So they're incomplete anyways. But those were published uh, to mirror the publication history. So they start off with like the early slapdash, fun, punk Elric stories. Mm-hmm. And then like the, they're published like, okay, volume two is the one from the 70s. Volume 3 is like the ones from the 80s, even though they take place before these. And when you read them like that, you're like, this is a much better approach. This is like much more organic, makes much more sense, is more satisfying seeing like the development of the writer artistically. Whereas if you tried to read these with like, uh, okay, Elric of Belle de Benet, then Fortress of the Pearl, then back to Sailor on the Seas of Fate, a, a bunch of the worst books end up getting front-loaded that way. Yeah. So you're never going to make it to, like, the cool stuff. Mm-hmm. And B, Elric <laughs> is, like, like, unrecognizable from book to book. Yeah. Yeah. So, if you're going to do it, that's the way to do it, I would say. It's not, it's not even like, you know, going back to Conan where he has a different job, like, every... Yeah. I say job and in the way it's, like, king, soldier, warrior, slave... Soldier, king, like it, is, it goes from one thing to the other, but he's always Conan. 
Yeah, which is, you know, it was supposed to be like Conan the Barbarian, Conan the Destroyer, and then Conan the King, even mm. though we never got that. Um, but yeah, that, that approach is more befitting Elric. And honestly, like, as much as I like Elric and as much as he is, like, the center of the, the chronology and, like, far and away the most popular character, he's not even the best part. So I mentioned before, like, uh, Corum, which came a little bit later, and is Corum is Elric-like in many ways, but he's a little more likable. Uh, I actually like the Corum books better than Elric. They're, I feel like they're a little more polished. Um, they're more atmospheric in some ways, more consistent. Corum himself is a more sympathetic character, and Stormbringer as a sword is like a really cool idea, yeah. which is why it's been ripped off so much, but... Uh, it's maybe more iconic, but I like Corum's deal even better because he gets mutilated by, like, humans when they run. He's like an elf, basically, mm-hmm. like his race. They're like the, the old people. Humans run them off, kill all of his people, and torture and mutilate him, so he's missing an eye and a hand. So he gets, as a replacement, he gets the hand of a god and the eye of a different god. Hmm. I think it's, if I remember, it's the eye of, the eye of Ren and the hand of Cool. Or vice versa. So, yeah, his hand is a six-fingered... Looks like it's made out of chain mail, but it's actually, like, silver scales. Mm-hmm. And then his other eye is, like, kind of a metallic embedded patch, like a suture with a ruby eye. Mm-hmm. And anything he kills with the hand, its soul goes into limbo, and then he calls it... He can, like, summon it to fight for him with his eye. Mm-hmm. And then whatever that thing kills goes into limbo, and it's like, it's a little... It's, it becomes it's, like a bag of holding, kind of? Yeah, and so it's... There's all these... And there's like a cool thing. He fights this creature that's like a, like a megalodon, like, a, like this huge, monstrous leviathan shark thing. Mm-hmm. And like he kills it with the hand, but it takes forever to die. So like they, they're like captured, and they move on, and... He's, like, about to be killed or something, and the soldier, whoever, says, like, you were uh, you were mighty tough to have killed, like, the Leviathan, uh, but now you have to stand up to us, and Corbin, like, it finally died. And then, like, he, like, lifts his patch, and, like, it summons the creature. <laughs> like it's, yeah, it's, it's, like, it's a little thing, but it's, like, a cool beat. It's a cool idea. And, and so it's, obviously, that takes more explaining. That's not, like, an elevator pitch the way that, like, sentient sword that drinks your soul is yeah but it's honestly like maybe more fun and you could see it being turned into like a game mechanic yeah uh, so corum is a lot of fun and it, it's even more like irish and celtic influenced um Same. yeah and then there's not, not to be like a little shit about it because I, I i like fantasy a lot like i'm partial mm-hmm. to it as a genre but he does write other grown-up books that don't have sword fights in them, too. Mm-hmm. So, like, the Brothel in Rosenstrasse is, like, a very good, strange novel about, like, as he described it, the limits of erotomania. What do you like, mean? When you, when you have, like, every sensation satisfied and you're still not satisfied, like, where does that lead you? Yeah. You have this kind of weird, somewhat despicable, but also kind of likable narrator. Uh, then the Colonel Piat books are insanely long, but they're maybe his like best works. Period. 
mm-hmm. where he just charts like World War One to World War Two through the eyes of this just Ukrainian hypocrite, yeah, this Jew who insists he's not Jewish and hates Jews and does the Hitler was wrong in execution, but he did have some good ideas initially, like yeah. So the character's just like just a monstrous, but again like weirdly easy to follow around as he very picaresque he gets into trouble mm-hmm. he writes these he writes like the breakfast in the ruins which is like a multiple choice book about how like as time progresses wars and colonial empires get worse and worse and worse mm-hmm. so just and you know i, I love the old stuff i love like the tanamore and moonglum shit but it's kind of like an Alan Moore thing at the yeah. end of the day where you're like, dude, I, I love Miracle Man and I love Halo yeah, Jones, yeah. but you know that he also wrote like book books without pictures. Yeah, and Jerusalem and Yeah, you, you know that like even if you're sticking with the comics, you know that he wrote From Hell, right? Yeah. Like with all the love in the world, From Hell is a better story than uh, The Killing Joke. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so, so there's a lot of that. Uh, and so, yeah, like, like if you get into, oh, and, and The Dancers at the End of Time, incredibly fun series, which kind of bridges those two worlds, because it's about a bunch of the last creatures alive at the end of the heat death of the universe, mm-hmm. so they have limitless resources, limitless power, and they just put on balls and galas, and it's like... Just like kind of a comedy of manners, but starring gods. Yeah. And then one of them decides, like, I want to go back to the 20th century and see what love felt like. And when he does, he learns heartbreak and it, like, robs him of his innocence. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's like this really fun, like, if Oscar Wilde and Jack Vance, like, collaborated on a book. Yeah. Like, very, very fun stuff, so. Wasn't Jack Vance, uh... Yeah. The, the fantasy author, the creator of The Dying Earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, not, d- dear God, if you take nothing else away from this, not to be confused with J.D. Vance. Yeah. The disgusting little shit-filled Ferrero Rocher who may or may not be the next junior senator from Ohio. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, what do you want me to call this stupid scumbag who, because he could string two sentences together... Writes a book about how much he hates his mom and the poor people that he occasionally had to hang out with. Yeah. Like, oh, some of my cousins were broke and we'd visit them, like, once a month. Those pieces of shit. Anyways, they should probably all die of fentanyl overdoses. Then he tries to make his case in 2016 as a never-Trumper. That falls apart, so he becomes the, I was wrong about Trump guy, yeah. I have so much more respect for just, like, straight up, like... <laughs> yeah. Like, just legit neo-Nazis wearing, like, wolf pelts on their heads. <laughs> going, like, our time has arrived. Like, I like those guys so much more than, like, J.D. Vance and Glenn Beck going, like, I could never stoop to supporting Trump. He won. As I was saying, God bless Donald Trump for saving the party <laughs> and the country and a bunch of babies, too. Yeah. And... and then parlaying that to the success, getting bankrolled by Peter Thiel, just because by the way, it's nothing new for somebody to to have like senators answer to special interests. Mm-hmm. We have arrived at a time where you it's just like a one to one thing. Yeah. So it used to be like, oh, the, this like Republican senator was owned by like 
the Exxon Corporation. Now it's just like, no, like, P Peter Thiel, the guy, owns this senator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, just, just, like, a <laughs> shitty political cartoon with, like, the puppet on a string. You're like, no, li like, literally, like, one-to-one. <laughs> yeah. -one. How do you vote? Let me call dad real quick. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, um, there, so there you go, folks. That's how... Elric and the Eternal Champion uh, ruined American politics. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, we, we could probably wrap up momentarily. Uh, we never get these in under an hour, but we try to keep them under two. Yeah. So I, I don't know, I've probably, in a freewheeling way, covered like a lot of the works and why they're cool and all this other stuff. And like, I remember Elliot from the Flophouse describing Moorcock as... The author of uh, books that are never quite as good as you want them to be. <laughs> Which is weird, because um, Elliot brings up the Eternal Champion, like, once an episode, but also insists he doesn't like them. Yeah. So I don't know what to make of that. But I kind of get it. Like, at the end of the day, I don't like Moorcock, like, quite as much. It, it's like the Mario thing. It's, like, well-rounded, but... Not good at any one particular skill set. Yeah. Like Mario Toe, that current reference. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, honestly, I think Moore is a better writer. And I think like Susanna Clark is a better wordsmith. And I think Terry Pratchett is funnier. And I think like Jack Vance is more original. And you can kind of like point to all these different things and go like, what specifically is Moorcock better at than anybody else? I couldn't tell you off the top of my head, but I do know that there's a lot of his stuff. Yeah. So you're you're guaranteed to like some of it. Yeah, and, just by yeah, maybe bonds. even most of it. Yeah. And also in real life, he he has always seemed like a cool dude. He's uh, like pretty left wing, pretty progressive, pretty hip. He has the story about when he uh, dove into a bush in Hyde Park to avoid talking to one of the Beatles. <laughs> Which, Wasn't it Paul? I think if I, I don't, if I were to guess, I would say it would be Paul. Yeah. Um, but whatever. And it, I sympathize with that as somebody who would probably like hide behind a lamppost and would not having to talk to John Lennon. <laughs> so, oh, I've got a new song about sharing. <laughs> I wrote it for Grover, but he didn't want to do it, so Yoko and I are putting it on a new album. <laughs> Okay, anyways, <laughs> pissed off so many people. Uh, Imagine there's no alien. <laughs> Imagine this had better lyrics. <laughs> Imagine this was deeper. <laughs> it's really easy if you try. <laughs> um, but no, John's written some good songs. Godspeed. Mm -hmm. uh, anyways... Um, so yeah, there's just fun stories like that. He, and I think the fact that he never actually became that popular yeah, contributes to him. Like, that... Because if we stick with, like, oh, like, he's very punk, you can't actually be punk and be successful. Like, yeah. at, at the end of the day, it's like, you, you have to sell out as an artist at some point. Mm -hmm. Um... It's like when you look and, at, and I, I mean that without any like snottiness or malice. Yeah, yeah. When you look at punk itself, you see bands like uh, 
182 and Green Day. But it's like, you guys, I like your music, but you guys lost something when you became, like, MTV darlings. Yeah, no, I, I totally get it. And, like, on a, on a political scale, like, you could and should have revolutions, but then you're the one in charge. Like, you yeah. are, sooner or later, you are the establishment. Yeah. Uh, so, it, you know, it's something to think about. And the result of that is... He, I mean, he's certainly well known, and he, he probably makes a good living just off of Elric royalties. Mm-hmm. But the the fact that he never became Tolkien, or even really like George R. R. Martin, mm-hmm. uh, is fine because it's like like Elric will always reading Elric will always be cooler than reading Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah, just keep that in mind, yeah, folks. And, he wrote, uh, he wrote an essay famously decrying, like, he hated Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. Which, for me, Tolkien is one of those guys like T.S. Eliot. Like, they're so square, they circle back around to being interesting. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know how to feel about it. It's this famous epic it's, uh, uh, essay. It's called Epic Poe, as in, like, Winnie the Poe. Mm-hmm. Uh, scatological. Yeah. And he, he kind of decries, like, the demoralizing effect of, you know, good, twee English writing without any teeth to it. Yeah. And I've seen that recently with, like, people complaining about, like, cutesy stuff. And, yeah, believe me, at the end of the day, I'd rather watch, like, Northman than Thor, Love, and Thunder. Mm-hmm. So I get it. But there is a point when you're like... Well, I'm worried that if kids watch, like, cute, safe little cartoons like Steven Universe, then they'll just grow up to be pussies. And, like, when I, like we watched, like, stuff with teeth in it when I was a kid, and that's why we grew up cool. And I'm like, isn't that just the flip side of, like, if you play D&D, you'll be a Satanist? Yeah. Like, at the... I, like, I get it up to a point. I even agree up to a point, but... It was just like, oh, well, like, kids read Winnie the Pooh, and it made them too, like, soft and colonial and mm-hmm. provincial in their outlook. And like, I bet it didn't have that much of an impact. Yeah. I, I think at the end of it, like, I read Alice when I was young, and I don't particularly act or think, like, Charles Ludwig Dawson. So I, I think, like, with so many other things, you're maybe over-ascribing, like, the artistic influence rather than the material influence of things yeah. on people's lives. If I could just throw that out. So that's one where like he and China B. Yeovil are big on that. And like, I don't actually know if it makes that much of a difference <laughs> compared to like, if you had a dad or if you could make rent or yeah. if you had a disability or something. Like, yeah, art is cool. Very rarely should it affect you on yeah. that fundamental of a level. Yeah. And it's, and at the end of the day, like, like oh, well, you're, you're, like, you're not learning true art if you watch too much of this movie. And, like, no, like, I, it, I'm as, like, annoyed as anybody else at, like, you know, Disney gobbling up, like, theater screenings. But mm-hmm. I don't think that's turning people into nerds any more than I think, like, metal was turning them into rapists. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, on a lighter note, though... Uh, with almost all of this stuff, Moorcock has been pretty cool. I mentioned before he's very, very free use. Mm-hmm. And possibly because of that, there is so much of his shit that has just become, like, part of the wallpaper 
mm-hmm. to the point where people don't even realize that it was him. So case in point, like, Stormbringer was probably not the first rune sword ever. Yeah. In, in like, fiction. It certainly popularized the idea. And now that's just a stock item. Yeah, the rune sword. Yeah, the rune sword. Yeah, it's just like a go-to thing in role-playing games. Every character that appears in a movie, like Suicide Squad or like the Black Knight or Katana or whatever. It's like, mm-hmm. and they have this cool sword which drinks people's souls. It's like, did you come up with that? That is really good. And, and the idea of like a living sword. Yeah. Like, uh, I, and it certainly wasn't the first of those. Yeah, I, I remember Darkstalkers, uh, Donovan's like giant blade that he, yeah. he doesn't even use, he doesn't even grab out of the handle. It just, and like, it's like one with him and like, laughs and stuff yeah and and so no i it probably did not invent that trope but it certainly like it formalized that at least as much as like tolkien formalized like that specific type of fantasy um same thing the chaos star literally just like doodles that he and his collaborator came up with like what represents chaos how about a wheel pointing in all directions and now you'll get people like some biker that has that like on the back of their neck going like yeah, I believe it was a, a, a figure from Scottish mythology that created yeah. the Chaos Wheel. You're like, nope, do it in 1962. Yeah, so many people have the Chaos Star. Yeah, and it's it's just like graffiti, and it just fully subsumed into Warhammer. Mm-hmm. And again, you're, you're like, oh, do you think either it's been around since like the Assyrians... Or Games Workshop created it. Yeah. It's like, nope, it was it was a guy in Ladbroke Grove in the 60s, and he came up with it, and then Games Workshop ripped it off, and he was too nice to sue them. <laughs> That's literally what it comes down yeah. to. And just save, and a funny example, Deep Purple has the album Stormbringer. Mm-hmm. And when they uh, they asked them, like, so it's named after the sword, they went, What? I thought Stormbringer was like a that's from, like, Greek mythology or something, isn't it? So They, they didn't know they, it's from Warcock? Yeah, like, yeah, or so they claimed, but there there was, like, a lot of people who were like, oh, the name Stormbringer, it was, like, that's probably from Norse mythology. Like, no, like, uh, there are euphemisms, but, like, it's the name of the sword from the books from 60 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so there's so much that he creates, and outside of, I would say, like, Tolkien and Lovecraft... Yeah, there are probably more people like borrowing his shit. Not that's the difference. Like not just stealing it because it's cool, but like you don't even realize you're ripping something off. Yeah, there are plenty of people who think that the elder gods in Lovecraft are actual like demons no. from mythology. There, there are people who like. There are people who know about the Necronomicon who have never heard the name H.P. Lovecraft. And yeah. who maybe, like, bought one of those, like, copies of it, like, from the 70s or whatever, where it has a pentagram on the cover. Yeah, when you think that the Evil Dead series is technically a Lovecraft yeah. uh, series. So, yeah, just the, the length of his shadow over some of this stuff. and It's like people play D&D and don't realize that it's the system that Jack Vance came up with in his books. <laughs> uh, you... People don't realize this, and if they think about it at all, they go, oh, it's probably from Lord of the Rings. You're like, no, it's it's from, like, Moorcock and Vance and Fritz Leiber. 
mm-hmm. and a million other people, and then no, 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 no harm in having a blind spot, of course. It's not like I know where everything comes from, but mm-hmm. it's interesting to get into that. And I'll part with this. Uh, Moorcock was a big fan of uh, uh, Mervyn Peak, and actually a friend of Mervyn Peak's. Cool. So for me, I'm all about Mervyn Peak. I like I like Tolkien, but I will take Gormenghast over Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. any day of the week. And it's funny because Moorcock eschews Tolkien. Yeah. But he loves Peak. Mm-hmm. His first book ever he wrote when he was a teenager, The Golden Barge, is written in the style of Mervyn Peak. That's neat. When he tries to retire and writes Gloriana, it is written in the style of Mervyn Peak. This incredible, like, Peak writes the way painters paint, mm-hmm. because he was a painter. Uh, so, like, Gloriana is, like, incredibly richly described in, like, lush prose, and not just, like, very, you know, plot A goes into slot B. Mm-hmm. And this is even reflected in the names, because people look at Elric and go... Oh, he's like the anti-Conan, or like it's a riff on this or that. Yeah. And he's like, no, it's Gormenghast, because all the names in Elric, they're one of two things. They're either like garbage nonsense syllables, like Yarkon and Ziembarg and names like that. Mm-hmm. Or they are uh, Gormenghast names. Yeah. Because in Gormenghast, everyone's either like Fuchsia, Swelter, Flay, or... Steerpike. Steerpike, Prune Squalor, Belgrove. It, that's honestly kind of Dickensian is where Pete got that. But, mm-hmm. um, same thing with Elric. The names of the... It's either like Divum Swarm, like just made up. Like yeah. that's enough. Like a Star Wars Yeah, name. that's enough consonants. But then the cool names are Moonglum, uh... Dr. Jest, the chief interrogator. <laughs> uh, the the wise counselor, Tanglebones. <laughs> it's like, maybe it's just me, but at the end of the day, I, I need less, like, Grokmathox in my books and more Tangleboneses in my books. Yeah. <laughs> it just reminds me of the... There's an old sci-fi story. Uh, it's about, like, essentially a robot who becomes the messiah to robots. I think it's called Messiah a Robot. <laughs> and uh, it's just called Janglefoot. Because that's that's his name. Like That's a good name. There's, there's, like, when he was created, there was just a busted thing in his foot hinge. Like, when they were creating him, so it kind of wobbles around. So he's just this messiah, messianic figure named Janglefoot. And I just, I always like that. That's, that's a cool name. Now I want to look it up. But, yeah, a long and as usual, and we could keep going and going and going. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, and then he also gave us the multiverse, which is not my favorite idea. <laughs> and we may or may not end up talking about that sometime soon. Yeah. But for now, farewell, sibling. I was a thousand times more evil than thou. <laughs> All right, everyone, remember to... Like, comment, and subscribe, and that's all I have to say.